invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I've been encouraging you to make it a discipline, make it a habit to bring a copy of the Bible with you. I want you to make it a habit to compare the words you're hearing in the pulpit to the words that you find on the written page. Don't take it for granted that Brian McCullough is telling you what's written there. You are here to think, to reason, to consider, to grow in conviction. Bring a copy of the Bible with you. I invite you this time to lay your eyes on verse 6 of Matthew chapter 7. But to give a little bit of context, we'll begin reading with verse 1. This is God's word. It is inerrant and infallible. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, You have given us, on every page of Your Word, Your infinite wisdom, so that Paul could say, we have in our hands the very mind of Christ Jesus. It is possible for Your followers, for believers in Christ to say, I know what Jesus thinks, because You have caused it to be preserved for us. And Lord, we ask that You would allow it to be a blessing to us this morning and not a curse. Help us to take it into our minds to grow in our wisdom, to grow in our understanding of everything that is around us, to see the face of Christ in these pages. We pray in His name and for the sake of His glory. Amen. This week we've been faced with the perennial question around evil behavior. What question is that? What's the question, why? We see the the activity of Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, and we wonder at the motivation. What would cause a man to invade another sovereign nation? Maybe a few of you Uh, have been around long enough to remember the events uh, uh, leading up to World War II. You remember uh, the late 1930s and European diplomats trying to make overtures to a German leader who who had visions of an empire. And we wonder why. We try to rationalize the causing the suffering of innocent civilians We see the pictures of of children who once were receiving treatment in a hospital now being ushered to the basement. And we wonder, what 
what could we say to a man like Putin to get him to change his mind? Maybe you've thought about the arguments that you would make. What would you do? We remember that some men seem only to understand brute force. To bring the consideration a little closer to home, maybe some of you have unbelieving family members. And every time you're together, you are trying to think through what you can say or what you can do to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on that family member. And you, maybe you've racked your brain and you have read books, you've, you've read all of C.S. Lewis, and you're trying to say, what is the one argument that I can make that will convince you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is your only hope. It is a reasonable faith, isn't it? I'm not asking you to believe that the earth rests on the backs of elephants and that's why we have earthquakes. I became a Presbyterian at Eastwood Presbyterian Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And one of the remarkable things about Eastwood is they had a counseling center, a biblical counseling center where they invited uh, people to come and receive counsel. And one of the first questions that was asked was this, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? And if you said no, then there was no counsel. This, this was the measuring line. If you didn't confess faith in Jesus Christ, if you were not willing to receive God's word as, the, as coming from the infinite mind of God, then there wasn't anything to say to you because you had rejected the counsel outright in rejecting God's word. And, and all of these things are coming together as we think about Jesus' uh, counsel to his followers from Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. How do we think about our relationship as the people of God to the unbelieving world? As we think about being light and salt in the world, being an influence in the culture... How do we go about doing that? What should be our expectation? Here, Jesus teaches us that godless men will not value godly counsel. And those who offer it must expect rejection and even hostility. Godless men will not value godly counsel. And those who offer it must have an expectation of rejection and ridicule. We began reading this morning in verse 1 of chapter 7, and the reason for that is that uh, Jesus begins here by teaching us that, that judgment of sin must begin personally. We begin with ourselves. Where am I in Christ? Am I, am I 
uh, looking to God's word? Am I asking God on a daily basis by his word to show me my own measurement? To show me the sin in my own life? He, He instructs us, Christ does, not to cease from judgment altogether, but but to begin by practicing judgment on myself. Perhaps going to the Ten Commandments, reading those commandments on a regular basis, and asking myself, how I'm measuring up? How is my obedience measuring up to God's Ten Commandments? How am I treating my brother or my sister or my teachers? Then and only then, Will you be ready to assist a brother to overcome sin in his own life? Once you have begun to apply God's word to yourself, to be critical of yourself, then you will be ready to go and help your brother remove the speck from his own eye. Les Stroud, who is a noted survivalist, some of you probably have watched his show that used to be on called Survivor Man. I remember him repeatedly saying to think of survival in terms of three spheres. If I'm faced with a situation that I need to survive, the first thing I try to check is, is myself. What do I have on my person that I can use to start a fire, to build shelter, to to obtain food? And once I assess myself, I assess what's immediately around me. Is there wood? Other supplies that I might be able to use. And then finally, I look further out to the the further out environment. Where do I need to go? In some sense, Jesus is teaching us to think of judgment in three spheres. Myself, my brother, and then finally we think about the world around us. In other words, assessing myself... Assessing brothers and sisters who are in the church. And then finally, assessing the world that is around us. How do we assist the world to make a proper judgment of itself? And Jesus would begin with you and he would say, first of all, let's temper the expectations. You need to temper your expectations. Think about that lost family member. What expectation do you go with when you gather for Thanksgiving and you are ready, you are armed with all of your Bible verses? Well, the first thing that Jesus teaches you is that godless men will not value godly counsel. Read with me again, chapter 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. It was a common, a common uh, mechanism in Hebrew poetry to stack phrases together that are actually parallels. And so we notice that Jesus makes two statements here. You should not give the holy thing to dogs, and you should not cast your pearls before swine. Those are parallel statements. And so everything stacks up and lines up together. So as we look at it, giving and casting are the same thing. Pearls and the holy thing are the same thing. And dogs and swine or pigs represent the same Things. The statements are a parallelism, and they're used to, to deliver a point or to make an emphasis. 
So the question for us is, Jesus speaking here metaphorically, symbolically, the question is, what do all of these things represent? Well, the holy thing and pearls are a reference to divine wisdom. God's word is a holy word. Begin to get this picture in your mind. God's God's word is a sacred thing. So we read in Romans chapter 7 verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 We read, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteous than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So God's word has the characteristic, do you see, of being holy. And its value is likened in scripture to pearls. In the ancient world, pearls had extraordinary value. Perhaps you know this. They were were some of the rarest gemstones available to mankind. And so at one point, even Julius Caesar passed a law that only the wealthiest members of society could possess and wear pearls. They had extraordinary value in the ancient world. And so Jesus uses this example. Not any, probably no one in that crowd would ever have possessed a pearl necklace. But Jesus addresses them as though they are a people who do possess pearls. We are reminded of the value of God's word. Not only is it holy, but God's word in the scripture is extremely valuable. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 72 would say, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Job, in in his own suffering, would reflect on God's word and say, No mention shall be made of coral, the same word for pearls, Or of crystal, the price of wisdom is above pearls. And the the writer to the uh, the, uh, Solomon in the Proverbs would say, My son, go into the marketplace and buy wisdom. Exchange your money, whatever you value, exchange it to acquire wisdom and instruction and knowledge. This is the precious thing to you. Uh, One rabbi... Rabbi Yosei ben Kisma said that he was at one time walking along the way when another man came to him who was from a wealthy city and he said, to, he said Rabbi, he said, where are you from? And, and Rabbi uh, Yosei Kisma said, well, I'm from the land of, of Torah. He said, well, I want you to come and live with me. And we will give you whatever you desire. We will heap upon you uh, pearls and, and precious gold Uh, We will give you thousands of denarii of gold, precious stones. The rabbi reportedly responded to him and said, My son, even if you were to give me all the silver and gold, precious stones and pearls that are in the world, I would not dwell anywhere 
except in a place of Torah. For when a man passes away, there accompany him neither gold nor silver nor precious stones nor pearls, but what will go with him is the instruction of the law of God. And the first thing that you and I should meditate on as we read this passage then is a simple question. How valuable is God's word in my life? Are you like Chinese believers who will risk death to obtain a single page? Is it that valuable to you? Does it give you life? Is it your joy? Is it a sacred thing to you? When you read it, do you you see yourself as communing with the living God? These are His words. In Jewish tradition, God's Word is a sacred thing. In fact, they would say that you ought not read the Bible in all places. If you walk into a room and there's refuge or urine on the floor, you don't read God's Word there. God's Word is sacred. And it is only to be uttered in sacred places. If a pig is passing in front of you, do not read the Shema. It is sacred and only belongs in sacred places. You treat it with sacredness and value. We, we think we do too by talking about Bibles that are left unburned in, in a, a burned building. But, but this is superstition, not sacredness. The question for you is, would you exchange every other thing that you own to possess the knowledge of God. Well, Jesus says to us that dogs and swine will never see the Word of God with this value. Dogs and swine here are a reference to godless and wicked men. They are, it's a reference to unbelievers in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, Paul will refer to ungodly teachers as dogs, that we are to watch out for these dogs. In Proverbs 11 and verse 22, a beautiful woman who lacks discretion is described as a pig with a golden ring in its nose. The common element between dogs and pigs in Jewish culture is that they are both unclean animals. Dogs are described as the ones who came and lick the pus off of Lazarus' open sores when he lay outside the rich man's house. And you know this. Who wants to be groomed by a dog's mouth? No one. They are filthy. 
The mouths of pigs also are filthy. These are animals that lie down. They make their bed in their own excrement. And so the Old Testament defined these animals as unclean. It was illegal for a Jewish man even to raise pigs. They were forbidden to eat them and even to breed them. And here, in his parable or proverb, Jesus uses the swine and the dogs as a representation of man in his fallen state. You remember, don't you, the man who returns to his sin as a dog returns to his vomit? Jesus, by this proverb, is teaching his people wisdom in the application of wisdom. How how do you teach wisdom to a dog or a pig? We take our dogs out to go to the bathroom periodically through the day. And there is never a moment when I'm calling the dogs back and I say, guys, it's warmer in here. I don't say, don't run across the street. Don't you know that a speeding car might hit you? I don't reason with them. Why is that? Because they aren't reasonable beings. All that they understand is like clapping my hands and whistling. That's the signal to come back. What Jesus is teaching you is that attempting to use godly wisdom to correct a godless man is like casting pearls before pigs. You remember that as we've gone up on the mount with Jesus, one of the things he's doing for us is giving us perspective. He is helping us to see the world as it really is, which no one wants today. We all want to dwell in the metaverse and virtual reality. Well, Jesus is pulling you down out of the metaverse, and he's saying this is real reality, not the reality that you imagine. This is how it is created to be. And what you need to understand is that godly men do not, ungodly men, do not have the capacity for reasoning that a godly man does. Trying to reason with an ungodly man is like casting your pearls before swine. Does this mean then that we ought have no interaction with godly men? Does this mean that I turn my unsaved family members over to themselves and do nothing? The answer is no, of course not. But you have to understand the right approach, don't you? Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul talked about how he came to Corinth to begin with. And he said, I, I didn't come to you with lofty sounding words... In fact, when I came to you as a godless society, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. He wasn't there to debate the finer points of Socrates' philosophy. Paul was there with one purpose, to proclaim the crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended Christ... That is what you apply to a godless society. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Our objective then is to bring the gospel to bear on godless men in hopes that God's Spirit will cause them to be born again and embrace Christ and then grow in godly wisdom. 
There's another thing that godless men understand, and Pastor Danny referenced this in his prayer. Godless men understand the rod. Proverbs 10, 13, on the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Children. Proverbs 14, 3, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Do you see how this functions in our culture? Too many times we treat wicked men like what they need is just a little bit more encouragement, just a little bit more help, just a little bit more assistance. We, we, it's as though we refuse to believe that there are men out there who actually want to hurt other people. We refuse to believe that there are men sitting at the tops of corporations, at the tops of the institutions in our culture, who want to bring harm to other men. And Jesus is saying to you, stop thinking that way. Stop being gullible. Wicked men need the gospel and the rod. But I want you to notice another thing. Jesus doesn't treat you like a godless man. He comes to you with a reason. You notice this? Every time in this sermon he has commanded you to do something, he's backed it up with a reason. He's treating you like an image bearer of God. He's giving you the command and the reason. This is good instruction for us as parents, isn't it? I command my children to do something, and then I tell them why they are commanded to do it. They are reasonable creatures. I think there's a, there's a wonderful lesson for us here, isn't there? That on the one hand, Jesus is teaching us don't apply godly wisdom to a godless man. He's just going to treat it as though it's valueless. And on the other hand, he does tell you to train up your children. It ought to teach you something about the way God sees your children. The first thing that we temper then is our expectation of godless men. They, they do not value the truth. The second thing that Jesus teaches us in the passage is that we ought to expect godless men to reject and potentially to harm you if you offer godly counsel. There's, you understand that there, there is not a creature, there's not a, there's not a human being on the face of the planet who is in a neutral position to religion. Do you understand that? Either men love the one true God or they hate Him. There isn't a middle ground. And we have to stop pretending like there is some middle ground. Jesus provides two expectations to any believer who wishes to counsel a non-believer from Scripture. The first expectation, notice what we read in Matthew 7, 6. Less, unless... Or because they will trample them underfoot. Here you are with your valuable string of pearls that some of you have only imagined owning. And you take it to the pigsty and you toss it in. 
What do you expect is going to happen? Suddenly the pig is going to wise up and say, why would you do this? Let me put it around my neck and wear it. This is not Wilbur. Godless men do not recognize the value of godly wisdom. Think about that for just a second. Godless men cannot recognize the value of godly wisdom. It it is like a strand of pearls to a pig. Pearls to pigs are no different from the mire of their pen. They will probably eat them. Likewise, godly wisdom, it has no value to godless men. They will take the Bible and put it on their shelf next to Dickens and Voltaire. They make no appeal to Scripture in their decision making. So if you address a godless man from Scripture, if you choose to do that, you must temper your expectation. Apart from the work of God, he is going to reject it over and over and over again. He will scorn you, mock you, reject you, and you must expect that. Stop being so surprised when people don't want to hear you preaching the Bible on the corner of the street. A godless man does not want to hear from Scripture. At the end of the day, you cannot reason with dogs and pigs. Reason is not the issue. This is not that we've got to come up with the wittiest argument. Surely, if I go and show them how many prophecies Christ fulfilled in his incarnation and death and burial, surely a godless man will listen to that and see. It's not not an issue of making your argument clever enough. The issue is with the man. Think of this. Is Is your reason superior to God's revelation? What can you do that God has not done to display His glory and majesty in the earth? And yet every waking minute, men look upon God's creation and say, don't know how this got here. This is why we so passionately preach the doctrine of election. The natural man cannot receive the things of God we learn. Why? It is unreasonable to him. He cannot receive it. The only way he is enabled is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Something must take place within the heart of a man before he will listen to the word of God at all. Our first expectation then is that they will reject, but here's the worst, the worst result. Notice what Jesus says secondly. Your work is actually going to cause them to turn and attack you. Some, some see here kind of a, 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 a 
chiastic structure where the dogs and then the pigs are referenced and the pigs are the ones who will trample and then the dogs are the ones who will come along and they will turn and they will attack you. You see what's happening. You throw your pearls in. You say, I've got the solution to your marriage problem. It comes from the Bible. And you get their attention. And rather than saying, thank you so much, they rip you to shreds. The word here is the same that Jesus used for the the new wine and the old wineskins. You remember that picture. You put the new wine in, it ferments and it stretches that wineskin until ultimately like a balloon it explodes. This is the picture. They will turn and explode you. They will blow you up. You will get their attention, seek their good, And they will hate you for it. Perhaps they will even seek to destroy you because of it. Stop believing that men in general have good intentions. I remember reading the story several years ago, I believe published by the American Family Association. It, it, it took me some time to believe that this could actually be the case, but they talked about a, an episode of Mighty Mouse. Some of you probably remember Mighty Mouse. He was, a, he was a mouse who wore a cape, and he was a superhero, and he saved damsels in distress when we believed in damsels. And he, in one episode, reached his hand under his cape and brought it out with a powdery substance on his finger, snorted it up his nose, and suddenly was energized to go and save the city. And a young woman in Kentucky had recorded this episode, and as she was watching it with her children, she said, something doesn't look right here. And the producers of the show kept saying, this just flowers, and he's smelling the flowers, but... It actually came before Congress and they viewed it and said, this is not right. And they began to investigate what was going on. And and the company that produced Mighty Mouse, it, it came to light, had actually hired as head of their children's programming a man who formerly worked for a pornographic magazine. Now presumably none of you would look for that on a resume for a children's director. We want to assume the best of people. And that's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't call you to be a Pollyanna. Wicked men want to hurt you. And if you seek their good, you must not be surprised when they turn and blow you up. The aim of every godless man is to make himself God of the world. Every godless man believes that you are living in the world that he has created. And how dare you come along with your scripture and try to bring reality to bear. And as I read this, one question that I myself wrestle with is has the Western church fallen so far that we are at a point where now we are taking the advice of dogs and pigs? 
Are we asking the culture to tell us what we need to do to conform and live in the world that Christ created? Where are we taking their counsel and seeking to to modify our lives? Do we long for the praise of dogs and pigs? Or do we still long for the praise of Christ? The last thing that you consider is that in saying this, in some sense, Jesus is predicting his own demise. For the rest of the story, you are going to watch what Jesus says in this verse play out. He's going to show you that He's going to bring the wisdom, the infinite wisdom, the infinite love, the infinite mercy of an almighty God to bear on a culture. And what will they do but turn and rip Him to shreds? All that He wants to do is open His arms. How often I would have welcomed you like my chicks. And what do they do but fry Him up? Are you better than Him? More powerful, more persuasive. You've lived 2,000 years now. You've read all of C.S. Lewis. You've read all of G.K. Chesterton. And you've got all of the arguments now. Setting the divine wisdom of God before unregenerate men, they turned against your Lord and they killed Him. And we would too. You would too. Apart from his work in your life, you're described here as a dog and a pig. In Matthew chapter 7 here, Christ has taught us that the person you and I must scrutinize most closely is ourselves. We cannot use our harshest, we must use our harshest judgments upon ourselves, being careful to examine ourselves in light of God's objective word to determine, am I walking before Him faithfully? Not just do I feel good in the moment, but am I being faithful? Having done this, now you are prepared to to go out to assist your brother or your sister to remove the speck from their eye. You you can say, look, I'm a worse sinner than you're ever going to be. And so I can help you. And finally then, we turn our attention to the unbelieving world around us. And we recognize that that world is not filled with people who are basically moral and need a little instruction. They don't need pats on the bottom to get things around. Vladimir Putin is not interested in godly wisdom. This world is filled with men, women, and children who at heart are hostile to God's Word. They don't believe God exists and they are also filled with hatred for Him. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not calling you to stop being the light and the salt of the world, but what He is telling you is to expect the right thing. Expect to be hated. Expect to be rejected. Expect violence when you go into the world to apply godly wisdom to it. 
Expect to be canceled. Expect for friends to unfriend you on Facebook. Say, no surprise there. You must expect total disregard and even hostility. Are you better than your Lord? The place to begin is by evaluating whether you are pursuing God's sacred word as a godly man or as the dogs and pigs. Is it a treasure to you? Is God's word a treasure? Or is it common, ordinary literature? Let's pray. Father, we pray for the world. It is your world. It doesn't belong to dictators or presidents or assemblymen or women. It doesn't belong to parliaments. It doesn't belong to the men who have the most horses or tanks. It is yours. So, Father, we pray, as we've already prayed, that your kingdom might come. Begin with us individually, Father. Cause Christ's kingdom to pervade our hearts that there would not be an area in my life or in our lives that we are not humbly submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ or an area where we're not asking Him to come in and judge, to sweep away the filth, to clean us up, to, to give us more pearls of wisdom. We pray for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. We ask that You would protect missionaries in Ukraine and in Russia. Cause the kingdom of Jesus Christ to go forward even in the midst of violent turmoil. There is only one kingdom at the end of the day that will stand. And it is Christ's. Comfort all of your people with these words. We ask in His name. Amen.